Last week on MediaStorm, we looked at the rise of exploitation in a post-Brexit, low-skilled labour market. In particular, the exploitation of Central and Eastern Europeans. Our dad was working at a stable. He was working full-time, but getting paid part-time hours. As his employer was working with foreigners, he could do wherever he wanted. This week, we look at what's behind it. I am a white other person. This is White Other, anti-Eastern European prejudice. We will be taking back control. The largest group of small boats migrants are from Albania. Many of them claim to be trafficked as modern slaves. End low-skilled migration to our country. Following the Brexit vote, there's been a surge in reports of hate what crime. What against Romanians? Nothing, but I've got a problem with Romania. Very big problem with Romania. You'll hear a few lived experience voices in this episode. Sources we interviewed who are living around the UK from Central and Eastern European countries, including Poland, Bulgaria, Romania and Hungary. Many of the people we spoke to experienced a rise in prejudice around the time of the Brexit referendum. When I was a student in Aberdeen, I was walking with two of my friends, all of us from, from Poland while crossing the street we were talking in in polish and a guy came up to us and he was like oh you're in the uk you should be speaking queen's english you should go back to your country you have no right to stay here because he, he was very aggressive he was like, oh go back to your country go go back to where you come from i got a very discriminative immigration officer she was like we're not paying our taxes for people like you to go to colleges and she just gave me a tourist visa which wouldn't allow me after leaving school neither to work or study they'd identify you as just being the foreigner without your actual name he started telling me about how he can't be racist because he employs polish people on his farm which I thought was quite a funny comment. Especially after the referendum, I remember seeing on the news, on Facebook, there were comments like, oh, this guy, he, he's from Lithuania, he's been convicted for theft. After Brexit, we're gonna send him back home and we can rot in jail there. And there are, there are many comments like that. He immediately sort of picked up on the fact that my accent was a bit different and asked, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm British. And he said, oh no, like you're not, you're not really British. Like where, where are you from? Come on, mate, you can tell me. And I said, well, okay. I mean, I'm uh, half British, I'm half Polish. And he said, ah, see, there we go. And like now, now I see it. Uh, you're not really British, are you? The referendum saw a significant spike in hate crime. 331 incidents were reported in the week that followed, compared to the average 63. Six British teenagers are free on bail after being arrested on suspicion of the murder of a Polish man. It is being described as a hate crime. Anecdotal evidence suggests there's been a huge rise in cases of racist abuse in the wake of the UK's referendum vote to leave the EU. But it's hard to actually measure prejudice against Eastern Europeans when we don't collect any data. Okay, I was looking at data on hate crime targeting Eastern and Central Europeans, but we don't collect that data. That's just not a category we acknowledge as in itself targeted and marginalised in a very, very deliberate way. This came up in the discussion between Helena, myself and Dr Alex Bulat during last week's recording. Alex is the UK's first Romanian-born counsellor. 
Yeah, and there's no like I don't think there are very many targeted programs encouraging different groups into politics or into media because at the end of the day, when I complete any kind of survey for any training program, I am a white other person. Most of us are within this like white other category. It'd be really interesting to see what the makeup of the population is because you can't actually say, oh, we need more Romanians in politics or we need more Polish people in politics if you have no idea how many Romanian or Polish councillors are because we're all white other. And doesn't that actually just reflect how little understanding we have of all these cultures that are just kind of clumped together as white other. And I feel like that's directly reflective of how they are presented in pop culture and the wider media, because this is something that actually came up with some of the sources I spoke to. I don't know if you remember Borat, right? Sasha Baron Cohen's Kazakhstani caricature. This is Natalia. He kind of embodies all of these nasty assumptions about white Eastern populations. She is my sister. She is number four prostitute in all of Kazakhstan. Nice. Filthy or sexually lewd or misogynistic. And even though Kazakhstan is in Central Asia, People that we spoke to from Eastern Europe would would say that this is the stereotype they're kind of confronted with the most. The amount of times I can get like the Borat accent. They always like try to do the Borat accent and like, oh, are you from Kazakhstan or are you from Bulgaria? And like, oh, are you from Romania? It's very different. Alex, what do you think of how the media represents Eastern European populations? When I see representations, they're either quite stereotypical or just simply wrong representations. So I'll give one one example. I was watching the series Peaky Blinders, right? I was watching with my partner and I was like, oh my God, they're speaking in Romanian. So there's like a very short scene where Shelby speaks some Romanian phrases. And I was like saying to my partner, like, that, that's wrong. I mean, he's supposed to speak a Romani language. He's not supposed to speak <laughs> Romanian from Google Translate. I mean, like we laughed about it, but it was like really representative of like how certain nationalities are not really understood, not even in terms of like what language each group speaks. We have all those generalizing stereotypes of like ex-Eastern bloc or like Eastern Europeans, they all speak the same language. They're all like kind of in the same category where there's like so, so much diversity, not only within Central and Eastern Europe, but also within countries. So for example, in Romania, we have several ethnic minorities, including Romanian Roma people, Romanian Hungarian people, Romanian Jewish people. And like, you know, this kind of diversity of our population is not really understood. When I was growing up, I think one of the biggest uh, pop culture representations was Dorota from Gossip Girl. Yeah. Um, but if Mr. Chuck come tell him Mr. Carter is more attentive to a woman's... Enough! I'm not going to play Where's Waldorf all night. How much is it going to cost? How much? So she was Blair's Polish housemaid. Mm-hmm. Um, a, the stereotype that she was a cleaner. Yeah. And B, the stereotype almost in a way, because she was so scheming, so much so that everybody thought she was Gossip Girl. There were a lot of uh, quotes that Dorota said, which were just so, like, I have one here, which is, in Poland, we have a saying, love is like head wound. It makes you dizzy. You think you die, but you recover. And it's just like, I wonder who wrote that. Oh, God. I doubt they were Polish. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's one of the examples I thought about. Um, it's often either the villains or the victims. If you think about like the villains in, in movies, they're usually, you know, Eastern European. They have Eastern European accent. Yeah, they're like unspecific Eastern European accent. Good luck. This yeah. is Taken. Good luck. Taken, yeah, that's yeah. a good example. Albanian. Um, Bond villains. Oh my God, did anyone watch Goldeneye? Yeah, I grew up in a Bond household. Goldeneye. 
uh, which is actually one of the more not too ancient. It's the Pierce Brosnan generation. The the evil sidekick. She's called Zenya on the top, and she's actually she's played by Famke Jansen, who's Dutch and who actually sp- speaks with a very very um, standard American accent in all the other movies she does. And of course, her surname on the top is uses a play on word because it's sexual. It's a sexual position in Bond's eyes, and. Even the way that she, she engages in combat is heavily sexualized. She's presented this like kind of depraved, sexual, evil being, which plays into so many tropes we have about the fetishization of Eastern European women. This time, Mr. Bond, the pleasure will be all mine. And again, with Taken, it, yeah, it's about sex trafficking and touches on this huge problem that was experienced, you know, at the fall of the USSR and, and an outbreak of the sex trafficking of women in the region. But the movie Taken, we only care about rescuing the kind of certified, pure, pretty American teenager. All the Eastern European women who, you know, they're just disposable. It's it's pretty dark. Mm-hmm. Take it back to Gossip Girl, Dorota. <laughs> I mean, she should have been Gossip Girl. Like, the, the end of who was actually Gossip Girl was truly one of the worst things I have ever watched on any TV program ever. Send us your thoughts about the Gossip Girl reveal. I know, it was like <laughs> 10 years ago and I'm still angry about it. <laughs> what are the roots of these stereotypes? And what do they mean for those nationalities living in the UK today? I put this question to two guests, historian Kash Tomashevich. I think there is very much a class aspect here. And sociologist Dagma Mazinska. Eastern European workers have tended to be either portrayed as kind of low-skilled, temporary, undesirable workers who are stealing British jobs. There was a strong sense that uh, Polish people, that they were they were beneath English people in terms of the work that they did. And as a result, they were there to be exploited. The flip side of that was that sometimes Eastern European workers would be portrayed in a superficially positive light as good workers. But that stereotype, it's not really positive because what it leads to is justifying their exploitation by saying that they're good workers what a lot of employers and the public assume is that, oh, they're exploitable. They will work harder, longer hours for lower wages. Dagma summarises the modern history of Central and Eastern European immigration to the UK, beginning after World War II. And after the war, since Poland was an ally of the UK against Nazi Germany, the UK passed the Polish Resettlement Act of 1943, which allowed servicemen who were uh, fighting in the Polish military to come over to the UK with their families. This was how Kasia's mother's family came to the UK. So my grandfather fought uh, for the Polish Free Army. He fought on the side of of the British and they settled here. There was a lot of uh, quite strong anti-Polish sentiment during that time. I think this is because it was a, a period of crisis as the UK was struggling to rebuild itself after a war that financially crippled it and also caused a deep sense of anxiety around who Britain was as a nation. And after that, obviously, the Cold War began behind the Iron Curtain. There was just a trickling of political refugees escaping communism. That was how Kasia's father's family came to the UK. Dad uh, came over in the 1980s. There was the disintegration of the Soviet empire, essentially. Again, there was quite a lot of anti-Polish sentiment, especially around people fleeing from the communist regime, I guess. I think this this still stands. A lot of people consider Polish people to be quite hard 
communist people, you know, hardworking proletariats, essentially, <laughs> uh, which is not how Polish people see themselves, of course. In 2004 was the Eastern Enlargement. And at that point, you saw a significant mobility, right? Europe is on the brink of a profound change. Ten countries are about to become new members of the European Union. I think that was the first kind of time I ever I started to experience anti-Polish sentiment. It was really strange as a kind of English-born Polish woman. During that time, I got the sense I was sexualized for it. People would kind of talk to me or look at me or interact with me in a way that I think was was fairly uncomfortable because it, it presupposed that I had a huge sexual appetite. I think there is very much a class aspect here. You had um, a really bad outbreak, I guess, of hotbedding, a custom where a number of people will share the same bed, but they'll take it in shifts. So that's really good for shift work, but obviously really bad in every other aspect. A flat that wasn't a flat, a bed that wasn't a bed, tiny, tiny uh, living quarters that were not, not fit for humans. And also I think a general sense in the population as a result of this, that Polish people even though they were victims of exploitation, were implicit in their own victimization. They were the architects of their own demise. There are a lot of like discursive strategies that people have employed to somehow make the experience of hatred by Caucasian ethnic groups sound more tolerable, such as xenophobia, or also the term cultural racism. Oh, you know, we don't dislike you as a people. We have nothing against you. We're just a different culture. Like, it's just racism. <laughs> Why do you need a different term? <laughs> Let's take a quick break. One really disheartening impact in the aftermath of Brexit is that there was a hierarchy created and the kind of convenient spokespeople for who's an EU citizen, who is a respectable EU citizen, tended to be Western Europeans. Next, I spoke to the co-founders of Polish Migrants Organized for Change. I'll start. Hi, I'm Marzena Żukowska. I am a queer, non-binary Polish immigrant. Hi, everyone. So I'm Magda Fabiańczyk. I came to the UK 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. They do feel that it's important to distinguish the prejudice Eastern Europeans face from racism as a term. It's not about ideas that emerge from the way we look or our ethnicity, but it's more to do with the geopolitical context and the way that influence was divided in Europe after the Second World War. And it kind of runs along the Berlin Wall. This sweeping category hides more than it reveals. It completely erases the, the diversity of it. Polish and Eastern European identity is so incredibly diverse. And I think one challenge we constantly face is that it's often constructed as being synonymous with white, Catholic, heterosexual, cisgendered, right? You can be multiple identities at the same time. You can be Black and Polish. You can be Muslim and Polish. You can be part of the Roma community and be Polish. And really, it's it's in those intersections that we need to be interrogating how marginalization functions. Otherwise, we continue to get this blanket pitting of Eastern European migrants, for example, against other migrant communities, which is not just destructive to, to social movements, it's convenient for the government to use various scapegoats when, when it makes sense to them. 
What gets lost in this sweeping categorization? So I am partly Yugoslav, but I never set foot in Yugoslavia. I'm sitting down now with journalist and producer Jelena Sofronijevic to talk about Balkan Slavic diversity and what we even mean when we say Eastern European. Jelena, tell us first about your personal connection to this topic. So though both ethnically Serbian, my parents came from different places in the then socialist Yugoslavia. They met in the UK and they brought me up in the diaspora. Some of your family came over with the European Voluntary Workers Scheme after the Second World War, which continued this pattern of immigration for labour that has played such a role in how Eastern Europeans are perceived and valued in the UK. With this scheme, the UK recruited war refugees to plug manual labour gaps that emerged after prisoners of war were released. Tell us about that history. There was a real consciousness that this was already being done in other countries across Europe. So Germany had the Gastarbeiter, the guest worker scheme as well. And that led to the introduction of this voluntary workers scheme, which was basically then set up to plug the hole in labour that was left when prisoners of war were returned. Displaced persons could apply to come to the UK under the European Voluntary Workers Scheme, they would have a mandatory three year service in a specific occupation that would be chosen by the government. So normally it was something like mining, agriculture, engineering, road service, some kind of manual labor. And after they'd completed that three year term, they could apply for any job and they were granted indefinite leave to remain. There was a real pressure on Parliament's side to get government going on a scheme like this to act quickly in order to get the best of the pick. So for instance, Ukrainian women were often prejudiced against because they were deemed to be of quote, peasant stock. And that's something that I think is a real gap in our media, in our reporting, that it's almost like individuals must fit this binary where you are either an economic migrant or a political one. And actually there are so many cases where that line is blurred. What you point to is something that's come up time and again in this topic derogatory perceptions of Eastern Europeans that are rooted in a history of being valued and treated as disposable cheap labour. But we don't really have a language for this prejudice in the way that we might around, say, sexism or racism. And that's left me wondering how to actually title this episode. One idea I've had is of calling the episode white bracket other, like, you know, you'd get on census forms. Does that, does that resonate with you? I can see you nodding. Absolutely. It's something I'm really conscious of. And as soon as you said it, you, I'm sure you saw on the camera, I started kind of nodding furiously because whenever I get that in a census, I never, it took me a really long time to decide how I would kind of identify within that. And even within my family, we've taken different decisions as to what we put. Nowadays, I tend to put white British other and will specify Yugoslav because that is the predominant um my predominant identity. But even talking about Yugoslavia, I mean, Yugoslavia literally means land of the South Slavs. It's Southern Slavic. And yet there is more of a uh, connection, at least um, in terms of our communities with other Eastern and Central European countries. So even that's a kind of difference that gets flattened, as I said, when you are other in a, in a space. Yelena, you actually did a BBC radio show about this based on your hometown in the West Midlands, Telford, or as you like to call it, Little Yugoslavia. Just recap for us what Telford tells us about Eastern European diaspora identity. 
a lot of people came here under the European Voluntary Workers Scheme and they were settled in the UK on former prisoner of war camps or military bases. And the reason why Telford was so popular is because there were five bases around the military site in Donington alone. And on those camps, you had not just Yugoslavs, you had Ukrainians, Poles, Czechs, Slovaks, Hungarians. So these were people who were spending lots of time together. There was a sense of community. It's in part a practical reality and it's in part a necessary solidarity that you have when you are othered as an immigrant. It's made me very conscious of Balkan and Slavic solidarity in the UK, just any kind of non-Western European, actually, (laughs) solidarity. A kind of anecdote to describe the connection that Yugoslav countries feel to each other is how every time the Eurovision Song Contest rolls around, we're happy to support any single country that looks like it has a chance of winning from the former Yugoslavia. Actually, this year, the song that we all really backed was Moldova's entry by Zadob Zadob. Which is a fantastic name, by the way, which is Moldovan onomatopoeia for Badumch. And uh, their song was about a train ride that goes between Romania and Moldova. And it features the same train track rhythm that's very common to the music that we have in, in Yugoslavia. And everyone in my family loves that song. I mean, as soon as it comes on, my dad starts cheering and whooping in the same way as if he listened to a song from his childhood in Yugoslavia. So... I really don't want to, like I said, overstate that solidarity and make it out like it's that everyone gets on lovely and there are no hierarchies within the community. But nevertheless, there's a sense when you are an other that you club to whatever you find that is familiar, you make those connections. And that was certainly the case growing up in Telford and growing up within a diaspora that featured so many different people. Eastern European voices have been missing from the media and from shaping how they are represented in their diasporas. One voice changing this is our own intern, Eliza. So my family's history in Britain starts in a resettlement camp in Surrey. They kept their heads down, didn't complain and stayed silent about the trauma and pain the Soviet Union inflicted on them. We'll call this section Revisionist History, featuring some Chopin. Donated to us by pianist Anait Karpova. My great-granddad was a Polish Jew from Lwów, which today is called Lviv. So he was sent to a military prison when the Soviets took over as a member of the Polish army. But during the Second World War, when the Allies were in need of more manpower, they actually conscripted these soldiers to fight for them. The Polish government had some issues with fighting alongside their Soviet oppressor. So Churchill and Roosevelt promised them that in return, Poland would recover some of its land from Russia. Ultimately, they broke that promise. So the way Poles today are taught about Polish-British relations during World War II is that it's marked by betrayal. That's something that you don't get in British history classes. So if we were to rewrite our history in a way that was maybe more representative, how might some of that look? One thing that's been written out is the contribution of Polish fighters to the Allies' victory in World War II. One example is the Battle of Britain. My own great-granddad was one of those conscripted to fight alongside the same Soviets that had imprisoned him. And he later fought in major World War II battles, such as the Battle of Monte Cassino. But Polish soldiers like him were not invited to take part in the Allied Victory Parade in the UK, which featured representatives from all the victorious armies. 
And it wasn't just about military support. Another example is the deciphering of the Enigma code. Alan Turing would not have been able to decipher the Enigma code if it weren't for the previous work of Marian Rejewski and a team of Polish codebreakers. They laid the basis of the decryption machine in 1933. And what explains this disregard that has been shown to the contributions of Poles and other USSR exiles in their new home, the UK. Well, when the Soviet Union joined the Allies, Soviet propaganda quickly seeped into British media. So they painted Poles as fascists and Nazi lovers, anti-Semites. So I think it's really important that we actively play a role in the way our stories are told and taught around the UK. It's just more truthful. It's it's an account of history that's not bound by a particular government's political stance at a particular time. And it means Brits can understand the many reasons that Poles move to the UK, which are beautiful but can also be traumatic. It's just a richer way of teaching history. We made this bonus episode as a follow-up to last week's investigation, which showed a rise in post-Brexit black market labour and a new era of exploitation of Eastern European workers. Please do go listen to it, share it, and let us know your thoughts. Our next investigation will look at polyamory, love, and the limits of the law. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>